This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company. And as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. So we have finished from the 2024 SCCM Annual Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, The full review with conference correspondent Anthony Hawkins will be coming a little later today. But today's episode will feature numerous pharmacist guests. So first off, we finish highlighting star research presentations from the conference. So Joanna Stallings returns to discuss the effect of antipsychotics on agitation in ICU delirium, secondary analysis of a randomized trial. Now that randomized trial being the Mind USA trial. And then Lama Nazir highlights not one, but two star research studies. Uh, procalcitonin and antimicrobial utilization in critically ill cancer patients with sepsis, the ProCAN study, and then the diagnostic and prognostic value of procalcitonin in critically ill cancer patients with sepsis. So uh, two great STAR research studies to highlight. And then the daily SCCM recaps end with a really fun roundtable discussion with the CPP year in review uh, speakers or presenters and moderators. So uh, Corinne Berger, Melanie Smith, Kendeni, Julie Farah, and Andy Webb. So all four of them come. It's an absolute blast of a conference of a presentation. And I think you're gonna you're gonna feel that in the roundtable episodes and of course the or interviews and the discussions with the two star pharmacist research presenters. So it's time to end the conference on a high note. Here we go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're joined by a very special guest, pharmacist star researcher, Joanna Stallings. She's coming back. I had to request her back on after such a, when she came on and did an absolute awesome discussion on our ACORN trial rapid reaction, which of course she was an author on. So if you haven't listened to that, 
Be sure to go do that. But Joanna is coming here to talk about her star research, The Effect of Antipsychotics on Agitation in ICU Delirium, the Secondary Analysis of a Randomized Trial. Now, reminder, Joanna is the Medical ICU Clinical Pharmacist Specialist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Post-ICU Recovery Clinic, Critical Care Research Group, numerous, numerous other things. Joanna, welcome. Thanks for coming back. How are you? Thanks, Nick. I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me to come back. Yeah, so excited and um, very, I, I love the fact that um, we have such a cool analysis from one of the large randomized trials that you were part of. So tell us a little bit about, about this STAR research project here. Okay, so I feel like this is a secondary analysis of the MindUSA study, so we can't talk about this analysis until you know about the MindUSA study. So just a refresher, so this was a randomized um, placebo-controlled trial that um, patients either received Haldol, Zoprazidone, or placebo for treatment of delirium, and essentially showed that there was no difference between the three groups, and this was published in the New England Journal in 2018. So obviously there have been some secondary analysis that we wanted to evaluate, one of them specifically looking at agitation, because uh, as I'm sure happens in many of your different ICUs, people use antipsychotics and schedule them in the background for agitation. So specifically, um, what we did here is we looked at patients and we looked at all their different RAS scores and any score that was less than zero was equated to a zero essentially and we found that there was no difference between the three groups with regards to um, agitation um, which I think is Definitely, practice changing, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, um, essentially, it's not helpful to give scheduled antipsychotics for um, the treatment of agitation. So, correct me if I'm wrong here, but was this secondary analysis essentially trying to test the hypothesis that we know medications probably don't treat hypoactive delirium, but would we see a benefit if we exclusively limited it to the hyperactive delirium, those with a positive RAS score? Or is that, a, is that not necessarily the target of what you all were thinking? Very good question, but not necessarily the target, because you have to think about two things. So when MindUSA was published, um, we did get a little bit given, I should say, a little bit of a hard time because people were like, oh, this is all hypoactive delirium. Nobody uses antipsychotics to treat hypoactive delirium. This is not helpful. But then if you actually look um, what is um, published, like in our table one, that was their first incident of delirium. Was it hyperactive or was it hypoactive? It does not account for uh, what they were throughout the course of their ICU stay, which obviously we know delirium, it's acute fluctuation of mental status. So these people were, um, when we looked at all um, their different um, episodes of delirium, and it was actually a 40 to 60, 40% to 60% um, split. So very even, we'll say very close to even um, split of hypoactive and hyperactive um, delirium. So that the your question is very good, but you have to consider once again that uh, delirium is fluctuating. So the RAS scores also are fluctuating, right? So because of that, I feel like um, they may have been delirious at one point throughout the study, and then they may not have been delirious at one point throughout the study. So I don't think that we can apply this to delirium. This specifically focuses on agitation. That's a really good point because... 
even though, right, we have the scores, the KMICU scores, but it's essentially a point in time. It's like taking a spot EKG instead of being on a continuous or a spot EEG instead of being on continuous. That's a really, that's a really good point. I'm glad you explained that because um, I think that's a really good takeaway um, as you think about applying the, the findings of this. So in your opinion, do you think, what would your response be if someone said, well, I just don't think you tried high enough doses? Do, you, do we think if we did higher doses of haloperidol as a present on that, 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 that we would see any difference? Does it look like it's a, a lack of a, of a like, dose response, I guess? Um, I don't think that we can really say that because honestly, when you look at the doses, like the max doses that people could receive was 20 milligrams per day of Haldol and 40 milligrams per day of Zoprazidone, and those aren't baby doses, you know? So I don't think it's really fair to say that. Like if we, like before you're in my time, um, like I've been told this, like what would happen is somebody would give like five milligrams of Haldol and wait like 15 to 30 minutes, give five more milligrams, wait 15 to 30 minutes, give five milligrams of Haldol. And then they would take that cumulative amount it took to get the patient down, we'll say, and give half of that scheduled and half of that PRN, you know, and you can't, I mean, you can't help but wonder, is that safe, you know? Um, So I don't think that people can really argue that these weren't high enough doses because it wasn't like we were sprinkling like one, two milligrams doses of Haldol that you would use like essentially as like an an anti-emetic or something like this is real dosing. This might hurt your brain what I'm about to tell you because what you described that I I had learned that at one of my previous centers, but it was a little different because you started with five and if they didn't respond, you doubled it. Oh my goodness. So it went five, 10, 20, and then it was the, and then it was the split. So I, I had to say that cause I knew that would be, that would be your, your reaction. <laughs> um, so incorporating these findings from this analysis of the mind USA study with what we already know, do we think there's a role for routine antipsychotic use or treatment for agitation routinely at least? I think that we cannot, we know now based off of this um, study that scheduling antipsychotics for agitation does not help. But that being said, if you have an agitated patient and they're going to punch the nurse, they're going to punch you, they're going to like tear apart the bed, run out of the hospital, et cetera, things that really happen. We don't know that antipsychotics are not helpful for that. And we have to have something to acutely treat that patient. So we did not answer that question. So I do think it is appropriate to give um, as needed antipsychotics in situations like that for severe agitation, but scheduling them is not helpful for agitation. I have to ask, because you rattled off all those examples really quickly. Are those are those anecdotes that you have personally known, or did those just come to your mind as things of people getting agitated, like like somebody somebody being agitated and just walking out of the unit trying to leave the hospital? Those are are those routine happenings. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, those things absolutely happen sometimes. Yeah, yep, that'll happen. Well, um, Joanna, thanks so much. My gosh, re- returning again so quickly. We're so so lucky. Star Research presentation, secondary analysis of the Mind USA trial. Thanks so much. Always appreciate you. Thank you, Nick. Very lucky to be joined by, of course, another pharmacist star research presenter, Lama Nazar. Now, uh, not one, but two 
star research abstracts which is absolutely unbelievable and she's been gracious enough to join get to highlight some of these the first procalcitonin and antimicrobial utilization in critically ill cancer patients with sepsis the procan study love that that's an acronym right and then um, the other being the diagnostic and prognostic value of procalcitonin in critically ill cancer patients with sepsis Alama is a critical care clinical pharmacy specialist at the King Hussein Cancer Center in Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Doing very well. Thank you. So I have to ask out of curiosity, what was your flight or travel day like on your way to come here to us at the Congress in Phoenix? It was a long flight. Yeah. (laughs) Felt like it was never ending, but I, you know, I got used to it after you get used to it after a while, uh, but it was fairly long. Are you a plane sleeper? Were you able to get a little shut-eye, or are you one of the people where you're on a plane, that's it, you're never going to be able to I mean, I'll probably get a few hours of sleep, but out of 14 hours, there's still so much to (laughs) go. That doesn't add up, yeah. (laughs) There's still a lot of hours to finish. 100%. Um, Well, obviously, the real reason that we're here is we want to hear a little bit more about your study and specifically your research into procalcitonin in your unit. So if you don't mind, talk a little bit about these, these two studies, these two abstracts, and we'll ask a couple questions. Sure. Um, again, thank you for having me on this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, so the study is the ProCan study where we were, um, uh, the main objective was to look at the uh, impact of procalcitonin, serial procalcitonin levels uh, using uh, a procalcitonin algorithm and whether that would impact the antibiotic utilization. Uh, and we looked specifically at the critically ill cancer patients, which is a challenging patient population when it comes to managing their antibiotics. Um, so it really came out from our clinical practice where one of the most challenging questions that we get dealing with septic patients uh, with cancer is when do you stop the antibiotics or when do, we, when do you de-escalate? Uh, these patients are immune compromised. They have a lot of other co- underlying comorbidities. Um, so uh, it does become a challenging question in terms of when do you stop. Uh, the uh, procalcitonin, as, as you probably know, there's a lot of literature about procalcitonin and how it could actually reduce the duration of antibiotics, but there's nothing that has specifically looked at cancer patients. And in fact, a lot of the studies have actually excluded patients that that are immune compromised and excluded cancer patients. So we wanted to look specifically at this patient population that hasn't been addressed in the literature. Uh, it was a randomized controlled study where we um, randomized patients uh, to either the procalcitonin group or to the uh, standard of care group. Uh, both groups had daily procalcitonin levels checked. Uh, the group that was in the procalcitonin arm uh, were given the the clinicians were given the procalcitonin levels. They were also given an algorithm to guide them in terms of how they can adjust the antibiotics. Uh, the other group, which was the usual care, they still had the procalcitonin levels uh, uh, measured, uh, but the levels were uh, were blinded, so none of the team members knew what the levels were. Um, and uh, by the end of the study, again, our main objective was antibiotic utilization. So looking to whether there is a difference in terms of antibiotic duration. Uh, in the procalcitonin versus the the uh, usual care group, uh, based on our findings, we did not find any difference. There was no statistically significant difference between both groups. Uh, so it, uh, 
based on this, the, the findings, it did not seem to impact the decisions or to impact the, the utilization. Um, I'll add a caveat here that we did not obtain the entire sample size that we were targeting. Um, so there is the potential that it could be underpowered, um, unlikely given the results that we have uh, and given the differences that we were seeing. But again, that is a possibility. Um, and uh, the main reason for that was the fact that we had to hold the study during COVID. So there's a part of that study that ran through COVID. Uh, so we had to, to hold that. Now, the, the other part of that study is uh, we, we took kind of another, uh, the second phase or the sub uh, analysis of that study was looking at whether procalcitonin could actually predict mortality um, and whether procalcitonin could predict positive cultures within this patient population. Uh, so we took the uh, procalcitonin level at baseline and uh, looked at whether there's an association with, again, ICU mortality, hospital mortality, and uh, the positive cultures. It was a very weak association, so we could not find a strong association. Uh, we took that a step further and said, well, maybe it's not the procalcitonin at baseline. Maybe it's the rate of decline that could potentially predict outcomes. So we looked at the 30% decline in procalcitonin at day 72 and whether that predicts ICU mortality, hospital mortality, or could predict positive cultures. And it was a very weak association with the three of them. Um, so in terms of being a predictor based on, at least on those outcomes that we looked at and those measures, it was a very weak predictor. Um, so that's kind of... Um, well, what a what a great and novel study idea, right? Trying to answer a question because, yeah, mm -hmm. and trying to help solve antimicrobial use in cancer patients is certainly a um, an endeavor that we're still trying to figure out. So, um, number one, kudos because you know you're completing a randomized controlled trial. That's awesome, right? That puts you in a in a rare group of researchers. So that's you know you deserve all the credit for leading. And of course, your awesome research team, right? Research is never a one person um, thing. But what would you say is the most challenging part of completing an RCT in the ICU? Um, I would say for uh, you know in my situation, um, I would say there were two main challenging parts. Uh, I mean, the first challenging part is what I mentioned earlier, as far as having COVID. Um, uh, running through the time frame of that study. So that was a major obstacle in terms of us being able to complete the entire sample size. Uh, we have an immune compromised patient population. So there were very strict uh, limitations in terms of what kind of research could be conducted during that COVID uh, pandemic. And the other part that I would say was um, uh, challenging but eye-opening is conducting a randomized controlled trial in, in my ICU. So this was, I would say, the first randomized controlled study to be conducted in, my IC, in our ICU. Um, uh, so it was a new concept. You know, everybody knew about randomized controlled trials, but it's completely different than running an actual RCT. Um, the team was extremely supportive, you know, whether it's physicians, whether it's nurses, whether it's pharmacists, uh, the entire team was very supportive. Uh, but again, uh, it is something that has not been done before. So the logistics of an RCT and the process um, uh, was something that we had to make sure that everybody was in, on board with. Uh, it went very well, but again, it's eye-opening in terms of some of the logistics that, that go with an RCT that, that need to be planned along the way. 
you know, obviously you have to go to like IRBs and things, but did you have to talk to the unit and get their approval to kind of go through? Like, did you have to talk about what logistically that would look like? Or did you get the trial? Was it approved? And, and as you're going forward, then you work with them. What's the process there from a unit perspective? From a unit perspective, the, the way I generally conduct my research, regardless what type of research is being conducted in the ICU, I like to get the team or at least the, the medical team and the, the, the in-charge nurses on board in terms of what the plan is, just so that you know everybody feels that they're on the same page. Again, it's a very supportive team, so no one... Has, you know, no one typically goes against what is planned unless there's a reason for that. But yeah, we, you know, I sat, we had actually physicians, we had nurses on board with us uh, on this RCT as part of the research team. Uh, we talked about the logistics, we talked about the process. Uh, and then once we kind of agreed on how we're going to go about things, then we submitted the full proposal to the IRB. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm someone that likes to just make sure that that everybody's on the same page before we actually take a step forward. And again, it's all been positive and they've always been supportive with that. That's how I know I'm talking to a clinical researcher because it's right. Like you, you want to get everything approved ahead of time, no roadblocks, all those things. And of course, like, you know, um, you want to make sure that what you're doing, you know, is in line with the T everyone's on the same page and we're going towards the same goal. So that's a really good, that's just good advice, no matter what research you're doing. Right. Exactly. So I'm glad that you highlighted that. And I think with this uh, specific study, uh, the procalcitonin arm required that the physicians make decisions based on the algorithm. So we have to make sure that that's that they're yeah. aware of what the algorithm is they understand what the requirements are and we still kept it up to the clinical to the clinician to finally decide to eventually decide on what the plan is but again it, there was a part where regardless whether they're part of the study or not they will be given that procalcitonin level and they will be given the algorithm to make a decision yeah. based on it so yeah definitely they had to be on board with that so um you talked about your results. So how will that impact, like what was, how was procalcitonin being used at all? Like how do you anticipate this changing practice, if at all, kind of in your unit? Um, so procalcitonin wasn't very commonly used, but it was used frequently in our patients. Um, and we were using it based on what was reported in other studies saying that procalcitonin could be helpful in terms of guiding the antibiotic treatment. Uh, but in, in, you know, in practice, uh, when we were getting the procalcitonin levels, it did not really have a big impact on the decisions that we were making. Uh, so it was used sporadically and, and it varied in terms of whether, you know, there are some people that would get a single level, other, others that would get serial levels. Uh, but the literature does report that patients with cancer may have elevated procalcitonin levels just due to cancer itself because they have an increase in the inflammatory mediators. So does this mean that if I get a high procalcitonin level on day one or day two, does that necessarily mean that it's an infectious process or maybe it's due to the underlying malignancy? And that's the reason why we decided to do the, the study with the serial procalcitonin is to really kind of get a better idea of whether the, that procalcitonin is high due to cancer or there are other factors related to it. Um, so in terms of, you know, how would that impact our practice moving forward, um, it, it, uh, at this point, we still need to do additional analysis for the study and kind of stratify yeah. patients and look at specific cohorts of patients. Uh, but the general, um, the general impression from the findings is that procalcitonin is not something that needs to be done for every single patient, and those serial levels are not what would really impact antibiotic utilization. So that's kind of the general 
um, impression from those findings. Uh, but again, it could be that maybe procalcitonin would benefit certain subgroups of patients, and that's what we're going to be looking at more more closely. Well, what an what an awesome what awesome study idea! What a great research, not only idea but execution. Um, now, I'd be remiss, right, in the introduction. Um, you know, you're practicing as a clinical pharmacist in Jordan, and so is there from a, especially for myself, the listeners, are there big differences or things that would stand out or surprising to us from, you know, your practice at King Hussein Cancer Center in Jordan compared to, say, you know, somebody at a hospital or health system in the U.S.? Um, I have to say that I'm um, fortunate working at King Hussein Cancer Center because we pretty much have a strong support for clinical pharmacy and the institution. Um, and it's, it's, I would say, one of the pioneers in terms of incorporating clinical pharmacists into the medical teams. Uh, so we have clinical pharmacists in every sing- on every single team in the inpatient setting. We also have clinical pharmacists that are integrated in the outpatient settings. Um, and physicians really uh, rely on clinical pharmacists. So it's, I don't see it very much different than, um, for example, a health um, institution or a hospital in the U.S. that has clinical pharmacists on board or part of the, the ICU team. Um, now, how things are in, in you know, other institutions in Jordan, it, it will likely be different. Uh, but I have to say, within KHCC, things are pretty pretty good in terms of the model that we have for clinical pharmacists. And for those who were at the pre-Congress session, correct? Mm-hmm. They were lucky enough to hear you get to talk a little bit about like your practice there. Is that correct? Yeah, so in the uh, pre-Congress uh, for, uh, CPP forum, um, I talked about the uh, critical care pharmacy practice in Jordan. So it was not just about KHCC, but just kind of um, shedding some light on how the practice is in Jordan. And I also touched on the part related to the pharmacy education and training, because a large part of that um, uh, will have an impact in terms of uh, the scope and the depth of involvement that the clinical pharmacist would have in the ICU setting, uh, because the training model is somehow different than the U.S. Uh, so that again, that does have an impact on kind of the practice, uh, the impact on practice. Well, thank you so much for joining again. The ProCan, one of two of her uh, star research abstracts, Lama Nazar. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for thank joining. Thank you very us. much. Thank you very much for your time. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Now, the moderators and presenters from the CPP Year in Review session join to highlight their awesome talk and session. All right, friends, we are here. We're in the West Building. We traveled across the street, and uh, I'm outside the room with uh, three presenters and the moderators from the Year in Review, the Clinical Pharmacy and Pharmacology session, closing out Tuesday. So what we're going to do, we're going to have a little bit of fun, talk with the presenters and moderators, but just so we know, set the scene, who's here. Let's kind of go around the circle because we are literally in the foyer standing, standing, in a circle with two microphones for five of us. So we're just crushing it today on Tuesday. So um, let's go around a circle. Corinne, let's just start with you. Hey, everybody. I'm Corinne Berger. I'm an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Nova Southeastern University. 
and I have a practice site in the medical and trauma ICU at Broward Health Medical Center. Hey everyone, my name is Julie Farah. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy, and I practice as a clinical specialist in the trauma ICU and with the Nutrition Support Service at Regional One Health in Memphis, Tennessee. Hi everyone, my name is Andy Webb. I am a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi there, I'm Melanie Smith-Kendenny, and I am a clinical pharmacy specialist in the surgery, trauma, and burn ICU at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Could have just said we have a who's who of pharmacists from the SCCM CPP section, um, but love that we, I mean, talk about a who's who of speakers, so I can't wait to dive in. But we've got a couple questions for the moderator for Corinne to start off our, our discussion here. So there were three incredible presentation or session title, presentation titles within the session. They were so good, I actually didn't want to pick, so I'm going to shift that burden to you and ask you which presentation title made you laugh the most. Oh, gosh. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, you're in good hands. <laughs> it was really good. Julie, you gave, you gave the credit away. No one would have known. You could have I just accepted it. I couldn't take the credit. I couldn't do it. Paul is one of my mentors, and so, you know, game has to recognize game. Like, he, he deserved it. Were, did you, were you giving him credit because you were worried that was going to flop a little bit, or was that, was that your hedge? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I knew it was going to be a hit. Uh, I yeah. just, I just had to have to give the shout out and, you know, the credit where credit was due. Yeah. Um, okay. So current last day of Congress, it's a large group of pharmacists. Who were you more worried about as you were at the front of the stage, the three presenters to your left or the audience of pharmacists on the last day of a conference? 100% the audience. Uh, pharmacist presenters are very by the book and they know their timing and we talked about the timing before, during, and even after the presentation. So uh, I would say the audience. Was there an emergency mute button? Is there like a, <laughs> what was the strategy if things went off the rails? No mute button, um, but I'm pretty good at just uh, redirecting the conversation, I guess. So I had some ideas in mind for how to shift back over, which uh, were almost implemented right at the end. We got close, but we, we almost had to implement them. It is a good thing you had plan B and C. All great questions. Okay. Um, that was great. So from we a were able to survive in advance. Survive. In, yeah. Well, you know, when you're answering three, four, maybe even five questions in with wrapped into one, that's just, you got to give kudos to, to, to you all, the uh, incredible presenters, speakers. Um, all right. So we want everyone to listen to the presentation and you all highlighted awesome things. So what I want to, what I want you to do, highlight what you think is your most fun fact from your presentation. So let us know. Um, I will say, I, so I, I discussed uh, as one of the trials in my presentation today, the ACORN clinical trial. And I think the most fun fact that I can, I can give to the audience is that Joanna Stallings was um, an author on that paper. A very, very well-known pharmacist, the previous chair of the CPP, and so I think it's just really fun that we get to talk about these big trials that are practice-changing, and pharmacists are out there, you know, paving the way for us. I mean, I think mine's going to be unconventional. I think my girlfriend's going to be particularly proud that I fit a Taylor Swift reference into my presentation, um, so I think that's probably the most fun fact from mine, that I was able to tie that together, make her very proud. <laughs> 
How much help or assistance did she give you for that reference? I have received a comprehensive education on the lore and ethos of Taylor Swift, so I feel like I was well prepared to come up with that on my own. <laughs> You've been baptized in I Taylor. Have, I have, yes. Uh, but other than that, I think the, the my favorite thing from my presentation was that I was able to present another presentation where I was able to give a little sneak peek of the Anexa Eye trial, which has yet to be published, uh, but kind of give just the taste of what is yet to come and hopefully get people's gears turning as we're waiting for that full manuscript i have been waiting to see <laughs> since it stopped so early and they let you know it was stopped early did you hear they you know there are different tiers of ads and signs you can buy when there are cappuccinos available with a stamp on the top that say anexa i was finished early that's when you know is that that i had at least two I of love them that. i love that i will say that there was a i think is it Portola, maybe whoever makes PCC, they had a coffee stand and indexed it. So, so out of Team PCC, I went to the lesser coffee stand to try to to try to fight the good fight. Um, okay, Melanie, wrap us up here. What was your fun fact? Um, I've been hearing about this all year, so I think my fun fact is that orthopedic surgeons got a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Did you hear that? Did you know <laughs> Ortho got a paper in the New England Journal? <laughs> um, Exactly. Oh, yes. Hallelujah. That's exactly right. Um, all right. So let's go, let's go reverse because you all got to highlight, you know, updates and topics that came out. So what's like an honorable mention that maybe just missed a cut? Because obviously, and we'll get into what it's like trying to talk about a year in 10 to 15 minutes. So what are, what are some honorable mentions maybe that uh, did anything uh, come to mind from that perspective? So for me... I it's interesting that you asked this question because my presentation actually looked very different until the ACORN trial was published. Um, I actually was, you know, I think the challenge with nephrology is that there's a lot of concepts and things that we're not necessarily applying to practice quite yet. Um, so, you know, one of the things I really wanted to potentially discuss was uh, the removal of race from the CKD equation and talk about, you know, how that affects the way that we care for patients, social determinants of health. And again, you know, in a critically ill population that may or may not have been totally applicable and also from a drug dosing perspective it may not have been totally totally applicable but that was actually you know kind of my third player um, in terms of trials to discuss. Yeah, I think probably the one that almost made the cut for me was one of the most recent Tenecteplace trials. I feel like I have been Tenecteplace man for the last year and a half at my hospital and all of our system hospitals. Uh, and so there was a recent Tenecteplace trial that came out that was, once again, showing Tenecteplace works just as well as Altaplace that I did want to talk about but didn't quite make the cut. Wait, wait, I have to ask. So are you the neuro version of the Florida man? Is that the Tenecteplace that's, man? That's it. I run around with my little vial. And the dosing table, and I'm yelling that it's it's good, it's good. Everyone should use it. And you so, see yeah. your lookalikes in the Grand Theft Auto commercials. <laughs> yep. Okay. Perfect. Okay, I'm gonna say my third place study, just because of the name, the Cryostat two randomized clinical trial um, that looked name. at <laughs> high dose empirical cryoprecipitate in trauma, and kind of similar to the four factor PCC study, they didn't find any benefit to using high dose cryoprecipitate in those patients. I mean, it's there's there's so many good good trials trying to narrow down talking about you know two, three, four. Um, yeah, Andy, the fact that you reviewed that, I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. Shout out to, to Andy there. Um, 
So how do you approach, because I'm curious your all's uh, opinion on this, how do you approach a presentation where the objective is reviewing pertinent updates from the past year? Like, how do you, how do you even approach and figure out what trials you're going to talk about and maybe compared to, like, how you prepare for, like, a clinical session? Like, if you're talking about the VTE management or, you know, sepsis management, things like that. I can start this one because I approached it like a systematic review. You know, typical type A pharmacist. I thought of every journal that I could possibly think of that had to do with trauma, and I did a full table of content review of those journals for the past year. Um, and that took a while. <laughs> I probably wouldn't do that for a regular session, but I was able to, you know, find the top trials that way. Yeah, honestly, I have to say I'm a little similar. I did take the slightly even nerdier way of doing it, where I designed an automated PubMed search that sent me updates every week. Uh, and so I built. The I like, wish everyone. I wish everyone could see the look of every of all the, of everyone else's. I own feet. that I am. I am chief nerd, right? Uh, and so it's I built cool out. For yeah, the, right. For so I built out all the key stuff and had PubMed shoot me an email every week if anything new came out. And obviously, I also have to plug Twitter. I did find several of my studies on Twitter. I mean, I bet that was easier. We're laughing at you, but that probably was way easier than these methods that I'm doing. Honestly. Um, uh, I definitely was the same as Melanie. I uh, was not the same as Andy. That's okay. Um, I will also say I might be outing myself a little bit with this, but one of the first conversations that Erin Barreto and I had, she was my clinical mentor for this presentation. She, um, she and I had knew, known each other before, so this was not weird when she said this to me, but she said, nephrology is not really your wheelhouse, is it? I was like, no, and I'm glad we're on the same page. But <laughs> I, I think that there's a lot of tangential overlap with what I do and being able to think about the way that the kidneys work and the way that we dose drugs. Um, so she was a vital source of information for me and definitely helped guide me in the right direction as to what would be pertinent to our audience. Thank you for clarifying that that wasn't your first interaction because that probably <laughs> would have struck a bolt of lightning Don't in you worry. if that was your first. Aaron and I were friends nice before that. Talking. Yeah, so mm, you and the kidney, huh? <laughs> um, so, okay, so we're, we're talking, we've been talking about the CPP, right? The clinical, clinical pharmacy and pharmacology section. This is the featured session or that section, that's tongue twister. So what exactly is the CPP? Why is it so awesome? Why are there so many pharmacists filling this room? Like what, like give the, give the pitch to, to listeners who may not be CPP members for whatever reason. If you're not, I, what are you doing? But Corinne, what is, what is the CPP? Oh my goodness. Are there any pharmacists who aren't members of the CPP? Um, I need to find I them. I <laughs> The CPP is really the pharmacist, critical care pharmacist home within SCCM, and uh, it is a very large but also very tight-knit network of pharmacists and also non-pharmacists. So there are many non-pharmacist members of CPP as well, so we welcome anybody who has an interest in pharmacy or pharmacology um, within all of the specialties. So trauma, neuro, I shouldn't even um, try to name them all because I'll forget <laughs> them. Uh, and we collaborate on research. We put out educational products. We put out uh, um, references and things like that, resources for all the members of the society. And this particular section uh, is really just our year in review, talking about all the literature associated with pharmacology. And of course, it's going to touch on every other section too, because it's going to relate to pharmacology within our various specialties. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so cool being able to share a room with 
with not only icons who are, who are publishing and writing these research papers we're talking about, but also, right, talking about the people who are doing the most up-and-coming research now, right, the ones that have done one, three, five years. So it really is, like, the best of both worlds. It's such an unbelievable place to, like, network. Everyone's willing to help. You have the mentor-mentee program. It's awesome. 100%. And like um, Julie had mentioned, even within the audience, a lot of the people are on the papers that are being discussed and just listening intently and smiling and supporting. So it's really great to see that too. That's a step below the flex, which is where you reference your own paper in your own <laughs> slides. Because that is cool. the ultimate. That's the best, right? Um, okay. I got a little beef though. In this airing of the grievances session, what do we need to do? Who do we need to petition for this not to be the last day and the second to last session? That's a great question. I think um, our new incoming chair, Megan Reck, uh, our first priority is actually getting another bartender for the reception. But very close after that, we'll be uh, figuring out a better place for this section. From what I understand is we have this place to keep everybody here as long as possible since we're one of the best sessions. But certainly uh, we would be very open to going earlier in the program as well. So it's meant to be a compliment because we're one of the noteworthy ones. Okay, well, they can compliment us in other ways. We can find (laughs) new ways to do that, right? Um, All right, to end it, I think a lot of times as a speaker, a moderator, most of what you're getting or you're getting feedback, what you did great, what you could improve on. All right, we're going to flip it a little bit here. We're going to ask you all, what could we, the audience, have done better to support you all? Could we, what better clapping, louder laughs, better head nods, better eye contact when you're looking for someone to, like, support you through your tr- slide transition? What, what do you think? How do we do, and what can we do better? Well, um, I think that what probably most people would say is that we want the audience to come in and be a little closer to us occasionally. I think we we all probably have been in that position where we like to sit towards the back and um, kind of hang out and be able, I personally do like to chat during presentations and get people's opinions, you know, that I'm with, but I think that having a little bit more uh, audience closeness so that we can make eye contact and have the head nods, I think that would be fantastic. Okay, now I do have one question here. Julia, did you, where was I sitting if you had to guess? Um, in the back. In the very back table. In yes. the back corner. Now, granted, I needed a table and things, but I just, just wanted to Fair out enough. myself there. Fair um, enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I will say the nodder, when you get a nod, I had a nodder, and it was phenomenal. <laughs> I, I locked on. He was, he was, is that, he so was is, your move, is your move like finding a group or section or person, or are you foreheads and distance? I like seeing that there's at least a single person who seems to be interested and that is enough for me, you know? And if I had that one person one. Yep. who was, he was with me, he was, you know, nodding along, and that, that meant a lot. Maybe two? Two would be good, you know? Maybe even two. Do they, do, do, are they, are you looking for people in your group, or are you looking for Anybody. strangers in the you crowd? Know, I am very open. I, I like, you know, a good person who's just interested. Maybe if I know him, I don't know him. It doesn't really matter to me. My ideal audience would include more cowbell. Hey. <laughs> ah, yes! <laughs> Oh my gosh. Just a little fun. That's amazing. And with that, what better way to close? Uh, Thank you all so much. Uh, CPP Year in Review. Be sure to listen to that on the Digital Congress. Um, Appreciate you all coming in, having some fun, ending our Congress out this uh, daily review. Thank you all so much. Can't thank everyone enough uh, for all their help with uh, joining me for interviews and discussions. 
giving feedback all throughout the 2024 SCCM Congress. Um, it's amazing. These episodes definitely wouldn't be the same without you all. Very, very, very grateful. Uh, also, absolutely love everyone that comes up and says, hey, I hope I hope everyone that does that can feel how much it makes my day, how much I love hearing some of those things. So thank you all so much that do that. Uh, remember, give a follow at Pharmacy to Dose for lots of great updates throughout the conference, and even when a conference isn't happening. So at Pharmacy to Dose. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The content and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.